0: Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the show. So I played Hyrule Warriors, Age of Calamity, and guess what? I liked it. I've made no secret of the fact that I liked it. I've brought it up a couple times in the past few episodes, and now I'm going to really get into the meat and potatoes and debrief my experience with the game. Where to start, though? Well, I guess a spoiler warning will do. I played the demo back when it came out, and I took it as far as it would go. The demo ends after the second story mission, which is the end of Chapter 1. Each chapter of the game is divided into a variable amount of story missions. And all of these missions, plot or otherwise, take place on the same map. Breath of the Wild's map, to be exact. So, unlike the first Hyrule Warriors, there is no... Adventure mode and plot mode and all that stuff. It's all there in the same version of Hyrule. It is the same. There's no Wind Waker, no Twilight Princess, none of those other games are here. Which disappoints me, but does not surprise me. On a more positive side, that allows for a more focused experience. If there's only one Zelda game to work with, then this game can do a more thorough job of marrying the Dynasty Warriors mechanics to a different game that it's crossing over with. Whatever Dynasty Warriors is teaming up with this time, though in actuality, Nintendo were the ones who approached Tecmo Koei, which says to me that it's usually the other way around, I don't know, but... It is really neat that Nintendo was involved with the development with this game, even if it's mostly overlooking things and stuff like that. Makes me wonder if this is supposed to be canon or not. The game really does feel like it's connected to Breath of the Wild as a result, though. Same art style, all the enemies and abilities are there, several of the same locations with the same layouts, the story covers all the major historical plot beats, It even has all the same voice actors, at least in the English version. And according to a Zelda Universe interview with Sean Chiplock, the voice of Rivali, the dubs recording was directed by the same person who directed the Champion's Ballad DLC back in Breath of the Wild. Hyrule, as we see it in Breath of the Wild, was faithfully recreated. It's not quite the same. A few areas are somewhat abridged, and they're a little altered to accommodate the new gameplay and what's supposed to be happening on the screen, but if you ask me to think of any real examples of changes to the layout of Hyrule, then I wouldn't really be able to have an answer for you. I just remember it taking a lot longer to move around in Breath of the Wild, like the desert. It took me a reasonable amount of time to cross the desert and get into Gerudo Town, but in this game, it's just five seconds, maybe? Even back before I liked Breath of the Wild, I at least liked its version of Hyrule, and I liked the characters, it was the world in general I liked. What I didn't like was playing through it and wanting it to be a Zelda game. Well, now we've taken all the elements I like and put it with some gameplay that I'm at least a little more comfortable with, and now I'm golden. pick up a lot more things easily, and I don't have to keep track of as many things. No stealth, no weapon durability, no temperature changes. The game still has cooking and weapon slot limits, but those are less pronounced overall. And since the levels are based on Breath of the Wild's geography, I'm at least a little more familiar with how to get around in at least some of the places. Some of them I don't completely remember. But I do like on an artistic level, that the Keeps, which are now referred to as Outposts, are built into the level design way more organically than they were before. They're not just abrupt square playpins that stick out from everything else. I will say that the game suffers from Breath of the Wild's lack of enemy variety, though, at least in comparison to Hyrule Warriors. Now, the first Hyrule Warriors, that was a goldmine of enemy variety. It celebrated the entire series, or mainly just the 3D ones, but still. And a lot of them were just sort of interchangeable mooks, but it was still really fun to see them all together like this. Breath of the Wild went for kind of a Luigi's Mansion 2 and 3 approach, where they narrow down the bestiary, but add a lot of personality to whatever the most common minion tends to be to try to make up for it. In this case, Bokoblins. And that carries over here, for better and worse. I did see a little bit of Bokoblin personality at, like, the first level. But otherwise, oops, all Breath of the Wild enemies. Their Hail Mary was, just like in Breath of the Wild, to introduce blue, skeletal, black, and silver versions of all the enemies over the course of the story. And elemental versions, too. Fire, ice, and lightning... You don't get any gold versions, though. I wonder if that might be in the DLC again. Now, to be fair, you do occasionally fight soldiers of the various races, though most of them are only in the side missions and very rarely in a plot mission. Boss monsters are kind of annoying to fight, though... Moblins, Guardians, Henoxes, Taluses, and lionels. I hope you really like fighting Moblins and Henoxes. The game really likes throwing those at you whenever it can't think of a good boss encounter. I was a little insulted during a couple late game story missions. One, they let you fight two Henoxes right next to each other in the same plot beat. It's just Oh, they're they're just both there in the swarm that's approaching the defense point. And then there's another mission where they make you fight a henox and then the blood moon resurrects it and you have to kill it again. It's like Yeah, man, just really love those Henoxes. Some of these enemies were just too beefy for me, though I don't know if that was because I wasn't upgrading my weapons enough. I never really saw a point to it. The blacksmith system in this game is there to upgrade weapons and kind of merge your excess weapons or even buy them off of you. But I didn't really need to do that a whole lot of the time. I just kind of did it whenever I needed to get rid of some stuff. All it took to get past the roadblocks was maybe a spot of grinding and being a bit more strategic with how I would approach a level. I don't know if this was brand new for Fire Emblem Warriors or not, but this game was my first real meaningful exposure to the mechanic of sending the other players to certain spots on the map where you're busy with one character and that feature really saved my bacon a few times except for the parts where my lead character would then wander off when i switch because oops forgot to sign them a role between that and the aforementioned character switching i did have a generally easier time with this game compared to hyrule warriors one Maybe it's simplified controls or being more familiar with the gameplay in general, but I didn't want to pull my hair out nearly as much as I did with the first game, though there were some times. I still kind of dread going back to that game at some point, but this one I could see myself coming back to it eventually. Gameplay is nice, but the story... Hmm, what to say about the story... The big thing about this game's story is that it rewrites the entire Breath of the Wild continuity. Calamity Ganon's destruction ends up being more limited. Rome and the champions survive. Link stays in tip-top shape. The Divine Beasts don't fall to darkness. The Yiga Clan has a change of heart. Happy ending for all. Some people take issue with that. I don't really know why... Maybe they think Tecmo Koei and Nintendo were being kinda cowardly about not giving us a grim story of the hero's failure. To be fair, tragedies are very striking and memorable. They have their fan bases. Halo Reach was really popular, if I recall correctly. But personally, I was fine with it. Even once I figured out what was going on, and it took me a lot longer than it should have to figure it out. I was still on the edge of my seat, so to speak. There's a mission where Revali and Urbosa are trapped in the beast and fighting the Blight Ganons associated with them, same for Mipha and Daruk in the following mission, and even though I knew things would be okay in this timeline, I was still sweating over how things might work out or not because of the atmosphere and because I had knowledge of what would happen hypothetically if I did fail. Almost as if Breath of the Wild itself was a grim vision of things to come. I knew, is like, okay, gotta save Mipha, gotta save her, gotta save Daruk, gotta save all of them. Uh, they can't die, I can't let them die again, I can't let them down again. Most importantly, I just like these characters. It's cathartic to see at least one timeline where Sidon gets to rescue his sister, where Zelda and her father can reconcile, where Koga gets a bit more dignity than getting dunked into a hole by one of his own traps. Also, I was hoping they would explain why Koga in the past is the same as Koga in the present, but I guess they just decided to roll with it. Another thing is that the plot changes were set in motion even before the introduction of the champion's successors. Yeah, the point where Yunobo, Riju, and all the rest come in from the future. That's kind of the point where people start rolling their eyes at the changes made to canon, but if you've experienced the champion's ballad, then, then you should be able to tell a lot earlier that things are going a bit differently than they did before. The champions were all recruited after Link already had the Master Sword, for one. In this game, he only gets it after they're all recruited, Zelda's relationship with Link is a bit different. Heck, the ending of Chapter 1 has Pura and Robbie reveal that the little Guardian has witnessed Calamity Ganon taking control of the Guardians. This gives them knowledge that this is an ability Ganon has, whereas in Breath of the Wild, it took them by surprise. Now, they can know in advance that he does this. This is what I meant by saying that it took me longer than it should have to realize that the story was going to change. And it all goes back to the little baby guardian's arrival. It's a sort of butterfly effect. I got the full scope of it from reading the game's TV Tropes article, corresponding with what I observed in the game, and I'd say some of it is a bit of a stretch, but there is a certain logic to some of these steps. To wit, in the very first level, Terrico, the baby guardian, causes the Sheikah Slate to gain a boost in power, and the Sheikah Towers to unearth themselves. The first thing... Never happened in Breath of the Wild, and it explains some of the gameplay here. The second is an event that only occurred in the future, the towers. They were still in the ground for that hundred-year period. Like I said, Pura and Robbie discover evidence of Hyrule's downfall. This gives Zelda and everyone ample time and urgency to prepare and not be caught as flat-footed though eventually the bad guys kind of catch wise to this, so they start doing stuff earlier too. With the towers being discovered earlier and Link being assigned to guard the first one, the researchers figure out how to teleport Hyrule's army around, and Link is postponed from finding the Master Sword. Without the Master Sword, but still being assigned to guard Zelda, The princess doesn't have as much of a reason to resent Link, so she gets a more positive first impression of him. There's also the fact that he pulls out the Master Sword specifically to save her from Aster in one of the levels, and not just because, hey, he's a special knight and you haven't woken your power yet, what's up with that, Zelda? None of that. There's also the fact that some Ganon malice chased Terrico into the past, and it took over the past version of him, which gave Aster and Koga more to work with for the evil plans. And that forced the good guys to bring out the big guns more often. They were working together to quell a lot of the monster uprisings, they were throwing their divine beasts at certain problems. In the original timeline, that wasn't happening so much. And now that the champions are all squad goals, Zelda has more of a support system in place and that puts her in a better mindset and that even allows her to unlock her powers at, well, kind of the same time as before, but in less dire straits. Link isn't on death's door when Zelda unlocks her power this time. And... Since we know when the Calamity is coming, Rome was able to get some evacuations going, which meant that Akala Citadel was better staffed, better prepared. The Citadel didn't get much screen time in Breath of the Wild, but historically, the soldiers' defeat there was the final nail in Hyrule's coffin, after everything else went wrong. So, if you pay attention to all those little subtle threads, you can tell early on that the story isn't going to go exactly as you might... Assume. The future champions are when it just really comes out and says it, though. And speaking of them, it's really interesting and extremely underexplored that the future champions recognize Link. This suggests that in the untouched timeline, Link canonically does free the four divine beasts. Sorry, Point Crow. But all in all, I'm fine with the storyline we got, and I think it makes enough sense. Besides, for all the time-traveling the Zelda games have used, we don't really get uh, a go-back-to-the-past-and-solve-the-future storyline. It's uncertain if Hyrule's future really will change, though. This could just be a sort of throw-the-dog-a-bone alternate timeline. I don't know. (laughs) If, If we could get the timeline where Link dies at the end of Ocarina of Time, I think I can accept a little branch of canon based off Age of Calamity. Let me go into some of the characters now. More or less every notable character from Breath of the Wild is playable here. Some people who are exclusive to the modern Hyrule, like Cass, aren't here for obvious reasons, but there's still a lot to work with. Link, Zelda, Impa, the four champions, and Hestu, they're your cast for the first good chunk of the game. And while he doesn't appear in many cutscenes, I love the idea that Hestu just might have been a witness to a lot of the key story elements... He might have been the one to save the champions from the Blights, if you so choose. He could even kill Ganon himself, if you want. After that, everyone is kind of considered a spoiler, but we're past that point now. Teba, Riju, Yunobo, the adult version of Sidon, they're all playable. As is Master Koga and King Rome. Optionally, you can fight and recruit Monk Maz Kosha from the Champions Ballad. As well as the Great Fairies, they all kind of do a weird team-up multi-character thing. Then if you complete some post-game missions, you can play as Terrico or Calamity, Calamity Ganon himself. Of all these optional characters, Maz Kosha is the only one I've managed to unlock. I kind of realized what the game was asking of me to unlock Terrico and Ganon, and I was like, mm, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to do this. Besides Terrico and, technically, Calamity Ganon, this game is very light on OCs. The first Hyrule Warriors invented a few important characters. Linkle, Sia, Volga, Wizro, Lana... I might be forgetting someone else, but I don't think so. This game is very good about sticking to the established cast. Other than unimportant Hylian Mies... The only new characters that stick out in my memory are Teriko, Aster, and Suga. We already know Teriko's deal, but Aster and Suga are two of the villains, respectively. One is the Dark Mage working with Ganon, and the other is just Master Koga's best lackey. Just like before, Link was one of my go-to characters, very easy to use, very versatile. Though, once he got the Master Sword, I didn't bother with his other weapons. Why should I? They make such a big to-do about the Master Sword, I might as well give it its due attention. My other mains were Rivali and Mifa. On top of being my favorite champions, their gameplay just gelled with me the most. Once I unlocked him, I got a lot of use out of Mazkosha too. I remember being very happy that he was actually playable. I liked playing as Rome and Koga, too, though I didn't really get to spend much time with them. Hestu was fun enough the few times I used him, but I never seriously gave him a chance. Orbosa was just okay, but I never really gravitated toward her. Impa and Drook, I never really figured out how to play, I just ended up button mashing for them. For Impa, it worked. For Drook, not quite. Then there's Zelda. The game forces her on you a number of times. I never got too comfortable with either of her movesets. Then there's the future foursome. I never really bothered to play as any of them too much, because I wasn't too interested in their gameplay mechanics, so I think I might have liked Taba. Anyone else I just didn't unlock. But a fun group of characters to use overall. It's really cool that they all get unique abilities, and they get unique ways to use the four runes. I would have expected them to run out of ideas after a while, Really makes me wonder what they could possibly do for DLC characters. Who could they do for DLC characters? They want to drag Cass in here? Make Poor and Robbie playable? I, I guess there were some data mine quotes that suggested maybe Aster would be playable for some reason. I don't know why or how. Suga? He's, he was cool really glaring omission from Breath of the Wild would be the three dragons. I don't know what we would do with them. Like, let us fight them, maybe. That'd be cool. But they they are kind of the last big presence in Breath of the Wild to not be accounted for. Like, I'm sure the dragons existed a hundred years ago. If Hestu was running around a hundred years ago. I don't, do they even get referenced? Uh. The game's soundtrack is definitely worth discussing. It has a lot more of a feel of of Zelda game compared to the first Hyrule Warriors just being a bunch of rock covers of Zelda songs, which is fine, but it's not really what I was interested in. It also addresses my complaint of Breath of the Wild lacking a lot of good background music, and instead gives us more really exciting music for every level. And I think that also helps sell why Breath of the Wild is so quiet, because here, the action is over, the war has been lost, it's been quiet for a hundred years, of course there's no music. And, uh, look, I get it. Both the games are trying different things with their soundtracks, and I just prefer what Age of Calamity does on principle. It appeals to my taste more, so of course I'd say that I think it's the better soundtrack. If we were to narrow down my favorite songs for today's favorite songs, that'd be pretty difficult. There's a lot of good ones, so I'm just going to shout out to several of my favorites instead of the customary three. First, basically anything to do with Rivalian in this game is gold, musically. As well as Koga and Suga's boss themes, and the rescue operation theme. Another standout is The knight Who Seals the Darkness, which plays when Link draws the Master Sword. It's so chilling to hear the heroic remix of the classic Zelda theme. Speaking of chilling and Zelda, there's With Power Awaken, which incorporates the melody of Zelda's lullaby, and it plays once she has unlocked her power. Very appropriate. And, while not one of my favorites, I thought it was cute that the first level theme was a remix of Breath of the Wild's enemy music. The music in these stages are dynamic. They change based on whether or not you're in an outpost or not. And if you've unlocked an enemy's weakness with the correct Sheikah rune. So, you never get bored listening to what happens in this game. But to give an example of a memorable non-combat song, I think the initial world map theme, which doubles as the game's main theme, would be my pick, Overlooking Hyrule, Prelude to the Calamity. If you want more Breath of the Wild before the sequel comes out, or you want to experience Breath of the Wild in a different way than you are used to, back in the past and all that stuff, then I think this game is for you. It is the best-selling of all the Warriors games, or Musou games, if you want to call them that. So, that's pretty good. I see a long and fruitful future for the Warriors franchise. Maybe even more Hyrule Warriors down the road. Maybe we'll get another Fire Emblem Warriors. Maybe we'll get another Persona Scramble after they finally do this Persona Scramble. I mean, hey, One Piece Warriors got to have a couple sequels, right? Right. Well, this has been the BitCast. Thank you for listening. I will see you on the next one. Listen to Bidcast anytime on podcastone.com and on the Podcast One app.